Hello, it's Paul Scott here again for part two of my podcast for the 25th of March 2023. There wasn't enough time to get macro comments into the main podcast because I had 48 companies to cover that we wrote about in the Small Cap Valley reports on Stockopedia this week. And I've got quite a lot of, I think, interesting points that I've jotted down on my pad throughout the week on macro factors and I didn't really want to have to rush so I thought let's try a part two podcast and if people like it a shorter one on macro markets news and views then I'll uh, maybe do two podcasts a week in future okay so turning first to the markets uh, obviously it's been another tough week now the FTSE 100 is currently 7,405. It peaked at 8,000 in mid-February. So we've seen a sharp drop of about 600 points uh, on the FTSE 100. That's what, 8 9%. I would say looking at the chart for the FTSE 100 though, this is normal volatility. You can't see, if you zoom out on the chart, what's going on at the moment so far anyway is not uh, out of the ordinary. Markets wobble, they correct from time to time. Um, and uh, where is it? Yeah, the FTSE 100 year to date, it's only down 50 points. So we've basically given up the rally that we had in January and February, which is not a disaster really, is it? So why is every, everybody so terrified at the moment, judging from a lot of the reader comments? I think it's because we're all worried, is this going to get worse, this contagion? But I'll come on to that in a minute. Now, mid-cap index is 18,500. Started the year 400 points above. So that's down, what does that work out at? About 2% year-to-date. And it's a recent low currently year-to-date on the mid-caps. AIM, of course, always seems to be hit the worst. Um, It was 1,036 a year ago. It's now 831, So, but most of the damage on AIM and markets generally really was done in, well, no, sorry, on AIM, small caps in particular. The damage was really done last year in Q quarters 1 through to 3, 2022. Then we had the bounce from the autumn last year, and we're, we're kind of getting close to testing those levels again now. So AIM is at 800, which is 31 points down uh, year to date. Not a disaster, um, but not great either. Now, obviously, what's driving this all, it's the banks, isn't it? Is it a banking crisis? I don't think. I I don't think so. I'd call it banking turmoil rather than crisis. And we know I'm I'm not an expert on banking. It is such a complex subject. So I think, you know, bear in mind, I'm just a, a, you know, an interested uh, small caps investor. I've got a good general knowledge of economics. I did it up to degree level and I've you know, loosely followed it for 30-odd years. So I, I broadly understand it, but I'm certainly not an expert on economics or banking. So I'm really interested in hearing from the experts. And I think two, two commentators that I really rate are John Authors from Bloomberg. And also um, one of our readers, R.D. Howarth, has introduced us this week to Matt Levine, also from Bloomberg. Now, the good news is he wrote that spectacular, spectacular post about uh, banking that Stockopedia readers, readers loved so much when it was posted uh, in Tuesday's Small Cap Valley report this week. So um, now the good news is if you go to Bloomberg.com and newsletters, you can sign up for John Authors and Matt Levine's and lots of other newsletters uh, free of charge. So I, I'm, I've just adjusted my Bloomberg newsletters to get rid of the ones I'm not interested on in anymore 
things like vaccines and pharmaceuticals, so I don't need that anymore. And I've started following Matt Levine, so um, that, I think, is good. Now, uh, so what's caused this banking turmoil? Obviously, very simple in overview. It's higher base rates, which I've been saying for months now, we're bound to have some knock-on effects. Um, I was saying that back in October, November, it's been a consistent theme of these podcasts. It's bound to, isn't it? Because higher base rates hits asset values across the board pretty much. Um, And this is causing, um, it's blowing holes in company balance sheets, sorry, banks' balance sheets, and insurance companies as well are suffering for the same sort of reason. They've got big holdings of gilts, which are worth a lot less on a mark-to-market basis. And this, uh, you know, much to a certain extent, very similar to 2008, it exposes which are the weaker banks. And so far we've had, what was it, SVB was the big one, wasn't it? Which uh, had to be rescued, went bust. And then there was another, oh, where's my notes? I did write this down. Um, I forget the name of the other American bank. Um, Where was it? Anyway, there were two, weren't there? And um, the latest ones, it's spread to Europe, of course, Credit Suisse, which has had major problems for years You know, everybody knew Credit Suisse was uh, in difficulties. That was forced, uh, UBS was uh, negotiated to buy it for very little last weekend. Amazing, isn't it, to think one of the two major Swiss banks effectively almost collapses and has to be rescued. Really surprising. And then the latest one that's come into focus um, this week, just gone, is Deutsche Bank. Again, Deutsche Bank, it's been an open secret that Deutsche Bank has been very weak, in trouble for a long time. Way too big to fail. So, But you've got a highly solvent, very advanced economy in in the shape of Germany. You know, we'll just bail it out. So I don't, if necessary. So I don't think these are things that particularly look anywhere near as bad as 2008. You know, there's no real evidence of systemic contagion so far, in my opinion, based on what I remember from 2008, where it was a domino effect. Everybody was waiting for the next domino domino to drop, and the regulators and the politicians didn't know what the hell to do in 2008. This time round, as I, I think I've mentioned lots of times before here, everybody knows what to do. You just ring-fence the depositors and make sure that the depositors are safe and that they know they're safe, then they don't take their money out. Because all that's happening is money is just moving around from one bank to another, isn't it? You've got the insured deposits. I think it's £85,000 in the UK. And is it $250,000 in the US? So that, that, that looks after ordinary Joe Bloggs like you and I. Um, but people um, who are sitting on big cash piles obviously have to think much more carefully because they won't be... Uh, ring fenced in the same way so if you've got any even the slightest shred of doubt about the solvency of the bank that you've got large deposits in it's entirely logical to take those deposits out and shove them in hsbc isn't it so the money is just going to move around and um something needs to be done i think to shore up these these smaller banks and the whole system is just unsatisfactory isn't it you know, a lot of less lessons were learned from 2008, but you've still just got this entirely unsatisfactory system whereby um, depositors can take their money out any time they like, usually, with a lot of it, unless they're term deposits. Um, 
and 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 the banks can't pay out all their depositors in one go. I mean, that's always the case with all banks, isn't it? So, um, really, the system's just unsatisfactory. Something needs to be done. I think somebody was suggesting that we need to just treat uh, all significant-sized banks as just a utility, which are guaranteed by where deposits are guaranteed by the government, and their activities are very limited in what can they, what, in what they can do. And then other organisations that want to offer complex derivative products and all the other investment banking stuff should just be separate businesses. So I think the time has come to to really do something about that once and for all. We can't just keep having these uh, systemic banking crises. Uh, Now, I did look at Barclays accounts last night. I thought, wouldn't it be interesting to actually... uh, look at the numbers and I have to say I mean I know uh, it just reinforces why I never invest in banks a lot of us say this so it's nothing earth shattering you know the accounts are just impenetrable I'm going through Barclays balance sheet and it's it's remarkably small market cap for the size of business what is it I haven't got the right tab up let's just call it up but the balance sheet is 1.5 trillion um, assets and 1.5 trillion liability 1.44 trillion liabilities 1.513 assets so you've got a relatively small sliver of equity uh which is either 55 billion or 68 billion depending on which figure you use uh other equity instruments it calls there i don't know what that is note 11 but anyway it's a very small sliver isn't it um the equity is only what does that work out at? about three of between three and four percent of the total asset and liabilities base so when they say that oh, the banks are well capitalized and they're very strong and everything i don't look at that and see a strong balance sheet position i have to say for barclays it seems to me it's got a wafer thin um element of equity and it wouldn't take a lot for the gigantic numbers above to suddenly change if something uh, unforeseen were to come through to really throw the whole thing into into crisis again. And that's why I think the market cap is way below net asset value. So I'm not convinced that UK banks are as strong as people say they are. But the other interesting thing is, if you look at throughout through, through Barclays balance sheets, uh, total... Loans and advances within assets, obviously, this is money Barclays has lent to its customers, is quite small, only $399 billion. So that is, is less than a third of its balance sheet strength. Um, and then it's got two, or this is as at December 22, it had $256 billion cash at the central bank. Now, to my mind, that's a number to compare with depositors' cash. And depositors' cash seems to be 546 billion so in other words it's it's got almost half of depositors cash is lodged um at the bank of england by barclays so if i'm reading that right and bear in mind i'm not an expert on banking accounts if there was a run on barclays and say depositors withdrew 30 to 40% of all the deposits at Barclays, Barclays has got the cash to pay that out right now in cash at the central bank. So that does seem to be confirming that actually Barclays could withstand a fairly serious run of deposits from its existing 
cash deposits at the central bank. So that's quite interesting, isn't it? Now, the numbers that alarm me within Barclays figures are the numbers on derivatives. It's got derivative assets of $302 billion. Well, what the hell are they? And it's got derivative financial instruments liabilities of a similar amount of $290 billion. So I suspect if uh, another... If and where, well, when another banking crisis happens at some point, it could well be derivatives blowing up in ways that nobody's ever anticipated, that I think could at some point be uh, a big problem. And then, as for what half of the other assets and liabilities in Barclays' balance sheet are, God knows, it's just totally opaque to uh, a modest small caps blogger. So, um, bit mixed messages there, but I thought it was quite interesting to have a look through that. It doesn't look to me, as I say, as if Barclays is vulnerable to a, a, a bank run by depositors. So that's encouraging. And we know the UK bank, uh, the UK authorities will step in and backstop it anyway. So I, I don't know anybody who in the UK, I'm out of my network of friends and family and people on the internet, I don't know anybody who's worried about having money in the major UK banks. And that's good. I was thinking back to what happened in 2008. So let's move on from the banks themselves, where, as I say, there's a multitude of news and views from people who know far more about banking than me out there. So I'm just thinking generally what what is likely to happen to the real economy, to companies, when... Uh, credit conditions get tighter. Well, that's the first thing, isn't it? Obviously, base rates going up considerably from 14 years at zero to now 4.25% in the UK and 5% in the US. It's going to be much more expensive to borrow, very obviously. Most companies that I've seen have got um, floating interest rates which are linked to Sonia or what used to be LIBOR, and they pay then a margin plus base rates if effectively. Uh, on on their borrowing. So borrowings are going to get much more expensive. So we need to look at that when we look at shares in companies that use a lot of, of leverage. The finance costs line on the P&L has probably been pretty low for the last 14 years. Well, that's likely to, to really go much higher in many cases, to re- really significantly higher if they're borrowing a lot of money. Um, now, analysts should factor that into forecasts, but you can't necessarily rely on that. Also, our year-end borrowing figures may not be representative of the average daily borrowing figures during the year, because most FDs, if they're sensible, window dress their year-end balance sheet. Everyone does. I used to do it when I was at CFD, uh, CFD, CFO. Everyone, all good CFOs should window dress the balance sheet. Not excessively, but you want to show a nice, strong cash pile, and then you give all your suppliers checks dated 1st of January, and uh, or do a payment run 1st or 2nd of January or something. I think that's just good practice. But of course, the you know eagle-eyed investors will spot the trade creditors' numbers unusually high. So you've got to look at both sides of the debits and credits, not just look at cash on a specific date. Um, so it's going to get tougher for companies to borrow, and it's going to cost them a lot, a lot more. So there's two ways of looking at this. My instinctive value investor approach is to say, well, I always avoid highly indebted companies anyway. So this reinforces when debt's getting harder to get hold of, probably, and a lot more expensive. It's just obvious that you want to avoid companies with uh, with, with excessive debt, which I do anyway. Um, but there's another way of looking at that, in that those are the shares that are probably going to be hit the hardest over the next uh, however long. 
and that could be could very easily be where the bargains are. I remember after two thousand and eight, highly geared companies were smashed to smithereens in their share prices, as everybody thought they were going to go bust. But very few did go bust. Um, most survived and went. The banks were very accommodating, actually. And a lot of those highly geared shares that looked so desperately risky in 2008 went on to be 5, 10, 15 baggers. You know, so there's two ways of looking at this. You, you, if you're risk averse, you just avoid the highly geared companies. If you accept a um, risk, you can. that's where you're going to find your multi-baggers of the future, I would suggest. But we just don't know which ones are which, do we? The other thing, what happened in 2008, my main recollection of it was that banks were very reluctant to renew facilities and typically renewed them for quite short spaces of time. So, uh, you know, a year or... It was unusual to see banks renewing facilities for two years or above. It just didn't happen. They mostly just renewed for a year um, so they could keep close taps on it. The banks were actively shrinking their balance sheets, though, remember, in 2008. They got very, very bloated... Um, you know, Fred the Shred at, um, was it RBS and HBOS and all these things were, were desperately overextended. Lloyd's with, with, with you know, the, apparently the capital ratios have been greatly increased since with all these banking reforms to make them stronger and so on. But uh, I'm still not completely convinced from looking at Barclays accounts, that's for sure. But um, the, the imperative in 2008 onwards for several years was these bank, banks had to shrink, shrink their balance sheets. So they were looking for any excuse to call in loans, providing obviously it didn't result in a, a loss. If they could solvently reduce or, or reduce the facilities, lots of companies were put under a lot of pressure by their banks to, to, to generate cash and to pay down those bank facilities. We're not in that situation now, nowhere near it. There's not even any evidence of that having even begun, in my view. Uh, but it could happen, couldn't it? The longer this banking turmoil rumbles on, the more pressure you could see, uh, the more reluctance on banks to lend. So we'll be, we always keep a very close eye on, um, on facilities about banking updates in the Small Cap Valley reports, and I'll redouble my efforts on that. OK, uh, so, so overall, I don't see this as being a crisis at this point in time. I don't think people should be panicking. Uh, but if you want to panic and go into cash to preserve capital, I, I, I don't blame you. I think that's a, a pretty a pretty sensible strategy in many ways. Um, but it depends what we're invested in, doesn't it? Um, I'm not panicking because I'm in... Um, I've got some diversification in my portfolio. I'm in high-quality companies that I think will trade fine and are trading well, in fact, um, not particularly cyclical. You know, I, I just think my companies I'm in will be OK. But there again, I thought that in 2008 as well, and that didn't work out. So I think, you know, do whatever strategy you feel is right for you and your circumstances. And I think people cashing out, you know, you're getting a decent return on your cash now as well. Short-term deposits like treasury bills. Uh, so a very good commentator on CNBC was saying on Friday, look, you can get four, four and a half percent on short dated treasury bills with no credit risk. That actually isn't a bad deal, is it? When everything's in, in, in turmoil and where you don't know where the economy's going and there could be a recession if all this banking stuff gets worse. So, look, I, I'm, I'm not going to diminish any strategy, I think sometimes but obviously playing it cautiously um can be very sensible now supply chains uh most of the company accounts i'm reviewing at the moment most companies are now saying 
um, supply chains are, are easing or normalising. J.D. Weatherspoon even said on Friday that they, they'd they completely normalised. I don't think that's true in all sectors, though. Friends pointed out to me that semiconductors and electronics components are still in short supply. Um, but things are very definitely, generally speaking, moving firmly in the right direction now. And that is a trend. Inflation uh, costs on input costs are now falling in lots of areas. Um, lots of companies have said that recently. And, um, you know, you can look up the prices of, of timber in particular. I was looking at Latham's, actually. That's very interesting, because obviously their profits are bound to drop in the coming years, probably quite substantially. But they made so much cash during the boom that, they're, you know, you can justify the still rather inflated share price because they've they generated all this cash, which, which, the, which is still there on their balance sheet. So Latham's is quite interesting. I can't help feeling it's likely to drop further, though, because, you know, profitability is bound to drop as the customers start demanding price cuts and will go to competitors who undermine prices. So I think this boom in selling prices will, in some sectors, actually start to be chipped away at by customers shopping around. But generally speaking, supply chain and inflation are clearly moving in the right direction now, which is good. Now, small caps markets, I've noticed pretty low volumes in the last week or two, very volatile prices. Uh, Now, this means you can be looking at some horrible percentage drops in some of our shares. Uh, HVivo, for example, is one of my favourites. That's dropped really substantially in percentage terms. But, you know, it wouldn't take a lot for it to shoot back up again. And I've seen that recently on the recent rebound bounce we had. Both my biggest holding, BOTB, and my second biggest holding, XPF, which is a experiential leisure bars business, and BOTB of, is the supercar competitions. I'm really keen on both those companies. I think they're doing really well and um, not necessarily evident in the historic figures with XPF because it's opened a huge number of sites recently, but every time I visit them, they're mobbed out. So they're doing it's, it's a very popular format, I think, XPF. So um, why did I mention those? Oh, yeah, rapid rebounds. That was it. When the market did bounce, and ferocious rallies are normal in bear markets, if this is a bear market, we don't know. Uh, it may be an early-stage bull market. I have no idea. It's not clear at this stage. It could go either way. But you get you get tremendous bounces. And those two shares in particular, BOTB and XPF, both routinely bounce 10, 15, even 20% in a couple of days. So I think if you're trying to time the exact low, you could well miss it. So for that reason, I'm not going to sell any. I'm not geared. I own the shares outright. I don't have any concerns at all about either company. And I couldn't care less what the market price is. But I'm only human. We all are. So, I, yes, I'm pissed off when I see red on my screen. How many thousands have I lost today? Oh, my God. You know, then you just got to think, it doesn't matter. I'm not going to sell them. They're long-term holdings. And the companies are doing well, which is all that matters. But if you're a trader, obviously, then you're going in and out of things. But you don't want to be panic selling on the down days. You, you want to be comfortably selling when, when the strong bounces come through, don't you? and then aggressively buying on the down days. But it's very difficult to reverse around your natural, the natural psychology and emotions we feel, isn't it? This is why I'm really no good at trading. I just uh, don't have that sufficient self-control, so that's why I'm sticking to longer-term positions. Um, what's this? Vigilant 
re-companies running out of cash. Oh, yes. Now, I always flag up in the small cap value reports if smaller cap companies are running out of cash. This week, this week we had that tiny thing, OSI, um, Osirium, which dropped heavily, um, real nano cap. But it was obvious, it was it's so obvious it was running out of cash. And, you know, you just have to avoid being in any company, I think, that is running out of cash. Uh, um, I keep banging the table about that, but it's so important. Companies with cash or, you know, modest borrowings that are well within their covenants can just breeze through downturns. Whereas companies, if they're... Why do they keep floating speculative companies on AIM with nowhere near enough money to see them through to, to viability? It just keeps happening. It drives me mad. There should be a contingency reserve of cash with all the things that float on AIM. They should have bucket loads of cash when they float because something's bound to go wrong, delays or overruns in costs. I ju- it just frustrates the hell out of me that so many... But but I don't buy them. So actually, generally speaking, it doesn't really matter to me. It's just I have to waste so much time analysing hundreds of dead-loss microcaps that I'd rather just ignore. Now let's have something positive. Upside. Rebuilding profit margins. This is one of my key themes for this year. Lots of companies have seen their profit margins smashed in the last year due to inflation and uh, all the other consumer turmoil and so on. Um, But they've been able to put price rises through for the customers. And as raw materials prices are now coming down, you could well see some companies really starting to strongly rebuild those profit margins. That's the thing we need to be looking for, I think, for upside scenarios. Um, Lots of companies are now saying that raw materials prices have peaked or are dropping. But a lot of them are saying wages costs are still uh, tough. So not all costs are, are, are falling. Um, Zotfoam's one of my favourites. ZTF is a good example of this. They put out terrific uh, 2022 results because they were able to put through those price rises and manage the input costs. So pricing power remains another key theme. If we see which companies got pricing power, they're the ones that will do better. Now macro, just some news that I picked up. Oil prices and wholesale energy costs are so much lower now they've come down a hell of a lot recently so what was a big tailwind sorry sorry what was a big headwind on energy costs for many companies could well it's going to start to become a tail a tailwind as they'll i haven't seen any companies yet say that energy costs are dropping but it's only a matter of time and i think that's quite interesting so that's we need to try and just get in ahead of these trends rather than reacting to them now inflation in the uk surprise rise to 10.4% so some people are saying is inflation stickier than thought uh, the prediction was 9.9%, so it's quite a bit ahead of expectations. Now, apparently, commentators say that, who know what they're talking about, I'm just regurgitating what other people have said, February is notoriously difficult to predict, um, and the OBR still thinks it'll be down to 2.9% by the end of the year. So I think one month's um, blip in the inflation numbers is not a trend, and it's not something to panic over, in my opinion. Uh, did I mention that Fed's, Fed has raised again from 4.75 to 5? I think I might have done. Bank of England's raised from 4 to 4.25%. I don't waste time following every nuance of these utterances from the central banks, but it does appear to be the case that we're probably at or very near the end of the, uh, of the rate rising cycle. Um, in the US, the commentators are saying pauses are now likely because of the bank turmoil, probably one more raise this year. Then uh, you could well be looking at base rates falling. 
maybe late this year or, tomorrow, or, or next year. When inflation's been solved, recessions may be uh, going into recession, the central banks will be cutting again, I think. So let's let's get in ahead of that. Later this year, there's going to be a good opportunity, I suspect. Now, the ONS said that retail sales were better than expected, and the Consumer Confidence Survey in the UK, I think it's GKF, isn't it? I haven't seen the source documentation myself, so I'll have a look at that. But consumer confidence is low, but it is now improving. And bear in mind also, I've mentioned this every every week, there'll be a 9.7% living wage increase from April this year, which is going to put a lot of money into relatively low income people's pockets from April. I'm quietly confident, actually, about consumers. I think... I think people have adjusted to higher energy bills. Um, I think people have made their choices about what they want to spend less on. We can all adjust our personal inflation rate by tweaking what we actually buy in the shops. A lot of discretionary spending's been curtailed. We know from company trading updates what people are curtailing and what they're not. So I think we've got most of the information we actually need to predict, famous last words, to predict how this year... Uh, could pan out for for various companies i and this is why i've got two big positions in bombed out shares in bars groups xpf because it's something completely different and i know they're trading well because i've been visiting their sites you can see it it's obvious and uh, revolution bars i bought them at 6p still slightly in profit about 10 percent up i that's the one position in my portfolio that does worry me because of the bank debt um, and, and the weakish balance sheet overall. Um, but again, I think their customers are going to have a load more money from April onwards. And the CEO and CFO just bought, I think, 50 to 100 grand worth of shares. Could be demonstrative, I don't know, because it's not a vast amount of money. But I'm prepared to take a risk on Revolution Bars. I think you could start to see improved trading updates uh, uh, from April, May, June and then the June year-end trading update. So fingers crossed on that. I've gone into it with my eyes open. But I think I think consumer stocks, bombed-out consumer stocks, could be an interesting area, actually, for later this year. But we'll see. We'll see. OK, I'll leave it there. I hope you found that interesting. And uh, if you like this format of a separate macro news views type of thing, I'll, I'll keep it going, because I do like... I do enjoy producing these podcasts, and I'm not. Tr- I'm not trying to say I know everything. It's it's just a, an opportunity, really, for me to stop from all the frantic activity of covering dozens of companies throughout the week to sort of stop and reflect and take stock. So, um, yeah, and you know, five hundred to a thousand other people seem to listen every week and find them interesting. So, uh, yeah, I'll keep doing them. They're fun. (laughs) Okay, thanks for listening. Do give me your feedback, good or bad, whatever. Add your views to uh, the items discussed because all these things are just conversation starters. It's not me saying I know everything at all. I like to listen to it and hear what other people think. Okay, I'll leave it there. Bye!